Hello once again from Robert Nauer, CPCM, CPPO, and your contracting expert advisor. In the last podcast, which I believe was season one, episode one, it was about how to get into contracting by simply submitting your resume through the usajobs.gov website and how to successfully knock on doors, not actually, but by phone or email, uh, in order to get yourself in front of people. The one thing that I did leave out was to make absolutely sure that you have several other sets of professional eyes. Look over your resume for misspellings and words that are not easily understood and to never use acronyms in a resume. Once you do that, of course, you can upload it and you should be good to go. Now, with that said, let's talk about once you get your foot in the door with the government as a contracting person, how do you progress? How do you succeed? How do you grow? Well, it's pretty easy. You keep your head down, do what you're told to do, do lots of research, and never ask your supervisor or boss for the meaning of something unless you have first already researched it and done everything that you can to try to understand the subject. Uh, now, with that said, I'm going to give you a little example of it with a guy I used to work for when I first started out in contracting at the Navy Regional Contracting Center. His name was Jim Hudgens. He was a GS-14, really nice guy, tough but nice, and he taught me a lot. And one of the lessons he taught me was, don't ever come to me unless you have first cracked open the book, the regulations, read it, reread it, think you understand it, and then if you still don't understand it, then you come to me and ask me what this means. That was a very good lesson. So that's an important thing you need to remember if you're going to get into contracting. Don't ever go to somebody and say, what does this mean? If you haven't done all the homework first to try to understand it. Now, let's talk about explaining how entry-level interns or beginners in contracting progress from, say, GS7, 9, 11 programs, which are progressive programs, or just start out at a GS6 or 7 level and progress in their career. Uh, how, does that, how does that go? Well, generally speaking, the lower the grade level you are, the less you are going to do in terms of um, capabilities for spending money, for designing contracts, putting contracts together. You will probably just buy little widgets and things and minor services. And the more uh, high you go with your grade level, the more sophisticated will be the things that you buy. Uh, and what about the courses that I'll have to take? Well, there are courses if you're DOD, meaning Department of Defense, uh, and one of the many agencies could be the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the uh, National Guard, the... Uh, uh, employer support of the guard, uh, just D defense contract management agency, many different DOD type organizations. They typically send all of their employees to take courses through the Defense Acquisition University. And the website for the Defense Acquisition University is dau.edu. It used to be dau.mil, but they changed it to make it in line with all universities. So it is dau.edu. And under that, they have a, a host of different programs 
functionalities that they train people in. Contracting happens to be one of the four main areas. See if I can try to remember the four. You have engineering and logistics, uh, business and finance, and contracting. I think that was the four. Anyway, so my particular field was contracting, and so would yours if you want to get into the 1102 series. Now, non-DOD agencies and employees, such as Small Business Administration, Department of Labor, Department of Transportation, GSA, etc., they have to go through a different organization, which also uh, works with DAU, and that's called the FAI, the Federal Acquisition Institute, which is under GSA. Uh, and that's the reason is because DOD funds DAU, and non-DOD agencies, money comes out of their budgets to help fund FAI. So primarily they want non-DOD students to attend FAI-type courses via their contractors, and with DAU, you will actually go attend classes at a DA Defense Acquisition University site where they're teaching a course that you might happen to need, whether you're in level one, level two, or level three as a career employee. So those are the basic training avenues for federal employees. Now, state organizations generally, to a large extent, rely on NASBOs and NASPROs and the National Institute of Government Purchasing, NIGP, at NIGP.org is the primary uh, organization that helps train employees of state and local governments. That's NIGP. They offer a certification as a all the, leading all the way up to CPPO, Certified Professional Procurement Officer, which I happen to be. Uh, I forgot to mention what DAU is. With DOD employees, you are required to either uh, get a level one, level two, or level three certification from DAU in what's called DAWIA, uh, the Defense Acquisition Workforce Improvement Act. And if you start out as a GS-7, you're probably going to be level one. As a GS-9 or 11, you're going to be level two. And as a, a GS-12, 13, and higher, you're going to be at level three, which is what I was. And so I had all three. Uh, and I didn't mention the third one yet. The third one happened to be um, the National Contract Management Association. And their website is www.ncmahq.org. That's ncmahq.org. And the National Contract Management Association has grown and grown and grown. And just like NIGP, they have just created extra certifications that they used to not have. Why? Because it's all about money. And uh, so they sell and try to market many different certifications that m may or may not be required, truthfully really are not required in order to lead up to getting your CPPO certification or your CPM, CPCM certification as I did from NCMA. So mine... Uh, from NCMA. I got the top certification you can possibly get. That was the CPCM, which stands for Certified Professional Contract Manager. Um, with NIGP, it's the CPPO, which is the Certified Professional Procurement Officer. 
And with DOD Dawea, it is basically a Dawea level three certification if you're, you were like me, a GS12 or 13 or higher. I had all three. And why would you want all three? Well, um, if you're a non-DOD employee, you would at least have a, an FAI certification of level one, two, or three. And if you're a DOD employee, you'd have a level one, two, or three um, DAWIA certification. But you can also have a CPCM or a CPPO or a host of other certifications that they offer depending upon how diligent you want to be towards training and acquiring other uh, course certifications. Now in the old days, the two certifications that I got, the CPCM and the CPPO, were much more difficult to obtain. They required a hell of a lot more training. Their examinations were much more difficult to pass, and most people didn't pass them on the first go-around. It took them at least two. When I took the exam, you had a uh, written examination that was in essay format, and you had a uh, 10 or 15 different essay questions you had to answer, and you had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you had to thoroughly think out your answer. It, it basically made you demonstrate your ability to think, analytically, judge, and write a response. The, to my knowledge, they don't have that anymore. All they have is a multiple choice examination. And so that makes it a hell of a lot easier. Also, the other thing was when I took it, I had severe arthritis in my hands and I was required to write out with a pencil and it had to be by pencil. You can use pen all of the essay answers. I was nearly crippled after eight hours and it was an eight hour examination of writing. It was so medically difficult for me to do with my, the arthritis that I had in my hands. So finally I appealed to NCMA in the late 90s and they finally relented and said, okay, you can now type your answers out on a laptop and not have to use a pencil if you have a medically justified reason. So I was one of the very first students that NCMA ever allowed to use a laptop to write out my essay uh, answers on my CPCM exam. I did pass the exam and I have been it now for a long, long time. So you have three different types of certifications you can get. One's from DOD, one's from NCMA, and one's from NIGP. And um, both organizations have their reasons for doing what they do offering the type of courses, as I said earlier, NIGP is directly related to state, local, and municipal and county governments. That's where most of their people have their designations. Uh, NCMA, the bulk of students and members, and it is a membership uh, society, come from DOD. So there's far more DOD employees that are members of NCMA and contracting than there, than there would be with uh, NIGP. I just chose to also get the NIGP in case I left the federal government, I could go to state and local government. I don't believe personally that state and local government is all that lucrative in relation to salaries as is the federal government, which pays all the way up to $138,000 for a contracting specialist. Um, but you know, it's what I chose. Anyway, nevertheless, there's a bunch of different certifications that you can get, 
And uh, if you're pursuing a career in the government, whether it be federal or state or local, uh, and if you ever plan on teaching or becoming a professor, you would really want to have those professional contract certifications, especially if uh, you were going to become like me and become a professional contract trial expert witness. You would need to have those certifications plus a lot of real world experience. So what are some of the things that you would purchase or administer uh, at the GS7 and upward level? Um, for example, starting out in government contracting, I purchased services, commodities, equipment, and systems, and as I got progressively higher and promoted, I um, bought and administered much more complex systems and equipment. For example, when I started out as a GS9 buyer for the Defense Logistics Agency at DISC Philadelphia, which stood for Defense Industrial Supply Center, I basically purchased at it as a low-level buyer hundreds if not thousands of screws, nuts, and bolts along with thousands of yards of plate, steel, and aluminum for building ships and airplanes, etc. Um, that's what I was. I was a commodity buyer. Later I moved up. Uh, I bought other things as a, as a GS9 and GS11. I bought mortuary and cadaver services for uh, dead soldiers coming back from the war, mobile tents, sophisticated radio equipment for the Navy SEALs, tools for EOD uh, members, ship alteration and repair services, and just a whole hell of a lot more. By the time I was a GS-11, I was buying and administering what's called EHAT systems. Elect I see if I can even remember how to say this. Electronic Hydraulic Actuated Test Systems. That's an EHAT system for basically testing uh, jet systems. And I also bought jet engine test systems, jetish jet engine test sites, built them uh, in conjunction with uh, the Navy and Marine Corps Air Stations, working with, uh, I guess it was, what was it, the Army Corps, NAVFAC, Na Naval Facilities Command. And uh, as a GS-12, I purchased military base operations support services, which ranged in the, oh, 10 to 30 million dollar range. I did competitive sourcing and purchased major equipment systems for base utilities, uh, road repair, and a lot of other really big ticket items for Navy bases. And for the outsourcing of DLA, Defense Logistics Agency depots under the competitive sourcing uh, program. And I did that with a friend of mine who has recently deceased, really good guy by the name of Captain John Hanlon. So as a, um, and also as a 12, GS 12 and 13, I taught contracting courses as a professor for DAU. Yeah, I actually went to DAU and became a professor. I also taught private contracting courses for firms like ESI International and, and other firms. And by the time I was a 13, executing and, buy, uh, and contracting for large-scale competitive sourcing projects at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, which is a part of the Treasury and at the Department of Labor, uh, for various commercial operations that governments wanted to compete to see if they could be outsourced and done more cheaply under a program called A76. I did that. And then finally, uh, as a GS-14, I became more of an over overseer 
in contracts and a program manager of the various contracting initiatives that my governmental departments were promoting at the time, being namely being A76. So at the end of my civil service career, before I retired and opened up my own consulting firm, I was interviewing for a GS-15 job at, uh, the, at the Department uh, of Housing and Urban Development. And back then, in, what was it, 2007, jobs were not very plentiful, plentiful for GS-15s. Not like they are today. Today, there are tons of them because everybody's retiring and there's nobody to fill the job. So you have a much better chance of becoming a GS-15 than I ever did. But I did get an offer to become a GS-15 at HUD. Um, now, G no, HUD is predominantly black in Washington, D.C., and there are very few white people working there. Not that I give a shit one way or another, but the head of contracting was an old Army colonel, uh, white guy, and um, everybody who interviewed me was black. I had five senior executive service members interview me, and they asked some really stupid questions. Like, um, one of them was asked by uh, Supreme Court Justice Thomas's sister. She asked me, Mr. Nawa, uh, there's such a problem with acquisition today. How would you fix the acquisition problem? And I said, what the hell did you just say? It was like, you can't even say the word acquisition. You say acquisition. Acquisition. So I got the idea right then and there that even if they offered me the job, I would not take it. I'd just retire. So I finished the interview, and I thought, eh, I just did average. So when I walked out the door, the um, head of contracts, the old Army colonel, came running after me and said, Hey, Bob, he said, you were great. You're exactly what we needed um, here at HUD. Would you take the job if I offer it to you? And I said, yeah, whatever, you know, no biggie. I really wasn't that interested. I had just determined in my mind, these bozos are not the type of people I want to work for because they don't know what the hell they're doing and they can't even speak. So I left and I went across the street back to my old job at Department of Transportation. My boss there said, oh, how'd you do on the interview? I said, you know, it was really weird. I had five people talking to me and none of them could speak English. But nevertheless... Even if they offer me the 15, which they did, I don't think I'll take it. And I didn't take it. I decided to retire and take a $25,000 buyout instead and open my own consulting service, which uh, was quite successful. So from 2007 on up to 2014, I did over 200% increases in business each and every year since I opened uh, the Acquisition Institute, which I was the CEO of and managed. And I made more money in five years operating the Acquisition Institute than I had made during my entire federal career. That's a no-shitter. I actually made more money as a chief executive officer and owner of my consulting firm than I made working as a civil servant. So that just kind of gives you an idea of the disparity in salaries between private industry, being a business owner, and working for the government. Not that working as a contracting, senior contracting specialist and contracting officer wasn't bad, it wasn't. It was a great job. Um, but the problem is, in the federal government, at the state and local level, 
there's always going to be just too many fingers in the pot trying to manage and micromanage what you do on a daily basis. And that creates something we call stress. So if you don't want to have what I call a shitload of stress in your life, then you might want to consider some other kind of career because contracting by its very nature is a very stressful environment. Why? Because people and programs want you, the contracting officer, to get the damn contract out the door as soon as possible, get it awarded, and get the work started. But the problem is, and we'll talk about this in later podcasts, is when you hurry up and try to rush to get things done, what typically happens? You fuck up and leave something out that's very important. And that will result in a change order down the line, which is very expensive for your governmental agency, and you don't want to do that. So consequently, the bottom line is, if you want to start out at the bottom and learn everything that there is to do about government contracting, I would suggest start out as a GS-7. Try to get into an intern program that promotes you each year as long as you do your job successfully. You become a GS-7, then a 9, then an 11. And from the 11 point, you have to compete to become a 12 and a 13 and a 14. There's no automatic promotions. You have to compete. Now, if you start out at the bottom as just a straight GS-7 or a straight GS-6, and you are not in a progressive intern training program, then you have to compete for each and every job you get at a higher level each time. There's no automatic promotions. I do not recommend starting out at a very low level like a GS-7 if you're not in a automatic training program, 7, 9, 11, or 7, 9, 11, 12 program. Those are much better programs. Plus, there's also no guarantee that your agency will send you to the required schooling. And that's a whole nother podcast, too, is the schooling that is required for uh, getting your promotions. So if you're in a 7911 program, the agency is required to send you to a minimum number of hours of training, and it can range from 40 to 80 hours per year while you're in the training program. They have to send you. They have to pay for your TDY, your room and lodging and travel. And they have to give you time away from your job in order to go to that school, whether it's an FAI class, a DAU class, or some other type of class. They have to give you time off from work, and that's time off in addition to your sick leave and your annual leave. So it becomes a tough thing for agencies to do that, but they have to, by law, do that. Whereas if you just come in a straight, single GS-7 position, there's no guarantees for anything, and there's also no guarantees for training unless you have a damn good supervisor who's going to help you. So I, my personal recommendation is never, ever, ever take any job just because it's there to get your foot in the door in contracting. That's a dumb thing to do. Get into a progressive training program that they all tend to have. Department of Interior has them. GSA has pr training programs. Um, in DCMA, Defense Contract Management Agency, has training programs. 
DOD, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps all have internship training programs that some of them are 7911 and some of them are 791112 programs. Um, and I, that's what I would go for. So with that, I hope I haven't overwhelmed you too much, but that's what you're headed towards. And the bottom line is, no matter what you do, if you get into a federal contracting program as an administrator or as a contract specialist, you do your best job, you learn as much as you can learn, and when you feel that you have plateaued, you need to seek out a promotion to the next level and do the best that you can do. Never just do an average job. You have to do the best job possible and always seek advice and counsel of a very good contract mentor. And with that, this podcast is ended.